any any thoughts that you would um, have some comfort level of sharing in the larger group beyond your table about purity culture? Can you go over that purity culture? You know, I've never heard of that. Well, um, in the 90s, um, largely, uh, in the early 2000s, um, there was a, uh, a, a movement that arose uh, largely in evangelical churches. It was spearheaded by the Southern Baptist Convention, um, and it was a youth uh, ministry-driven um, initiative, and it was... Uh, represented by such um, such endeavors as True Love Waits uh, and and some other things as well. Josh McDowell was a big uh, youth circuit um, presenter and teacher as well, and uh, he had some materials out too. And a lot of local churches, uh, youth ministries were all in on. Uh, ways to teach young people how to abstain from sex before marriage. Now that sounds um, like, it can sound like a pretty straightforward and plain goal that is in line with orthodox biblical teaching. However, um, as with anything, we, we have the ability to to tinker with things until uh, they become uh, sort of caricatures uh, of, of their former selves. And so, oh, and also it was, uh, there, were some, there were some authors uh, that were a part of this movement too, like a man named Joshua Harris, who wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. There are other books too, um, Sacred Marriage by, um, I can't call his name now, but um, uh, there some of these uh, books <clears throat> were part of purity culture thinking, so-called. Purity culture is a recent name for all of this. Um, but what has happened in the last few years is that stories have emerged uh, of from people who have had been wounded and damaged in various ways by these kinds of movements. And the wounding and uh, the damage stems largely from a, a tendency that churches have, or any groups have really, uh, but, but we're talking about churches here uh, and groups of Christians to shame, to, bring, to, to indict certain uh, people or to uh, lead certain folks to think that they are under the disapproval of others uh, in a way that that excludes them from full participation in the fellowship of the faithful. And so I read a story just recently uh, about a, a young woman whose youth group leader uh, would have, they would do a a skit, and I, I, I'm telling you, this rings so true because I, I saw many such things. I never saw this particular one, in which uh, the youth leader, youth minister, would have several students, you know, up in the front of the group, 
and he would give the first, and if they were in a line, he would give the first person a cup. The, the person would spit in that cup. The second person would do so all the way down. And then the last person would drink it. Um, and the point was, uh, this is how people are going to view, in this particular instance, it was, he was aiming this towards uh, girls. This is how people are going to view you. Um, this is what you're like if you sleep around. You know, it's, you're like uh, er everybody else's bodily fluids, you know, uh, get consumed by uh, that person. If, you, if that grosses you out, or men, if you, if you uh, uh, go after girls who sleep around, this is what is happening to you, you know. Um, and so this young woman now uh, was, was sharing this story out of her pain for, uh, you know, here's the thing. There very few people who are sharing these stories saw an opening for forgiveness and renewal. What they heard was you're bad and you're stained and you're a cup of spit, and you're trampled. And I remember, I, I knew youth leaders who would do the, the rose, you know, thing. Remember the rose? Uh, they would have this rose, it would be all, you know, torn or trampled or whatever, and, and then they had a nice new rose, and, you know, say, which rose do you want, you know? Well, you know, and I remember thinking, as a young youth minister in the 90s, Hey, that's really a great graphic representation. I mean, I was, I was right there. Um, thank God I never did that, that I know of. I uh, hope I didn't. But um, have you seen the Matt Chandler video? No. No, I haven't. I'm sure that's awesome. Um, but yeah, hats off to people like Matt Chandler for uh, countering that. But see, this is where purity culture went. It is, and I remember, I remember, as a youth minister, you know, being all in on the True Love Waits thing in the '90s, and you know, uh, talking to my students about that kind of thing. And, um, and I remember girls being um, very uh, anxious to the point of neurosis uh, because of things that they had had participated in um, and and just being you know completely devastated and very fragile and so uh, it, it seemed to be it seemed to sort of take on a patriarchal kind of uh, shaming bent and so uh, this is what I mean that, that I kind of went on long there but that's that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about purity culture Joshua Harris has denounced his book uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Um, he, in that book, he advocated courtship, and he said dating is of the world, and it is, you know, uh, a, a path to sexual ruin. Um, and what ended up happening was a lot of people refused to date and threw away chances that they had to, you know, meet somebody in our culture that they could have uh, married and felt like they were unworthy for wanting to try to go out and meet people through dating or dating type uh, things and, and 
they ended up boxing themselves in, and um, and now you know they they see this as sort of a bill of goods that they had been sold. Uh, you know, there there um, there are other viewpoints, but I'm just saying what Joshua Harris himself says about uh, his book, and he's he's actually corresponded with many people who. Uh, who he says he has hurt uh, through the years. So, did somebody else have something? Yes, Haley. So, the period culture thing, I was, that was a really huge part of my like junior high, high school years. That's like when it started to get really big. Was, like, Got it. That was like that pivotal point in my Like, I grew up in it. Like, I, sure. I remember turning about 12 or 13, and then suddenly, like, everything around me was about. Not having sex. Yeah. Um, right, right. Every girl had the James Avery true love weights right now. Sure. I still have it at home. Yeah. Um, every person was reading the um, boys are like waffles and girls are like spaghetti book. Like, it was oh, all yeah, about. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It was all about like dating culture. And then I remember as I started to get like 15, 16, I never heard my church talk to young men about it. <laughs> Um, it was all on me. Yeah, uh, I, re I remember hearing. I've heard from you know pulpits and, and, and youth leaders say, "Young women, you you have to safeguard boys' eyes." What? Yes. So at my church before First Baptist, it was a lot about women and modesty, mm -hmm. which for me was not going to work out very well because I didn't dress very modestly or to any gender standard out there when yep. I was in high school. Yep. And like, I felt super judged mm -hmm. for what I wore. And I yeah. was going to church and was trying to be a good believer. And I thought, how am I going to take my friends? So you felt this, you felt this pressure. Yeah. These two stories here, y'all, are very they indicative. Would, they would throw us the like, modest is hottest line. Yeah. And then I remember going to summer camp and I would have to stand that was a thing. Modest is hottest. Yes, that's a thing. Okay. And I remember wow. older women in the church say that to me. Yeah. And I was like, Can you imagine Jesus saying that? My friends, I want to tell you, modest is hottest. What? To capture that, it's not even modest is hottest because like, if you dress like more masculine, they're like, don't you want to put on a skirt? Right, exactly. Like, no. See, Levi, that's exactly, yes. The, the sort of gender norming that goes along with that. Yeah, uh, I, I got you. Um, all right, so um, that's uh, American evangelism for you, Evangel evangelicalism. Um, and, and by the way, you mentioned James Avery. Purity culture became a mighty big industry. A lot of people made a lot of money off of that, too. You know? I still have that ring. Get your purity ring right here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like in, in the purity culture, in my experience, I could say a lot on this, but what I will what I will say is I saw it at Christian music festivals, I yeah. saw it at conferences, I saw it when I was that age. People in the ministry seem to be more concerned with people with unbelievers' purity, believers' purity, than in salvation and discipleship. Wow. Well, and, and see, it becomes then, it becomes the only people who are, you know, make sure to come to Jesus and 
clean up your act or whatever. Um, my father had this little um, little uh, calculus formula that he, I call it. This is what he always said: Christ plus nothing equals salvation. That that was his formulation, and boy, ever so subtly, we we say Christ and you know other stuff, and then you're you're in. But that's not true. It's not true. Um, now, I will say this. Was there any grace of God in the, in the purity culture? Well, as with most things, yes. And so, um, by the grace of God, perhaps some uh, were spared the pain of sexual, um, a, a sexual burden that they were not ready to bear. But, good heavens, y'all, we have the ability... Uh, not just to depend on you know the, the sort of in spite of uh, avenue of God's grace, and you know we we have the ability to open the spigot to the full on uh, grace. So we we need to be striving for that rather than well you know if we screw up God will take care of it. Um, it we can't really uh, afford to operate like that. Um, you, you've touched on it just a little bit, but what kind of community has the church been regarding sexual shame? Is there, is there have you seen either loving or, or hurtful instances of, of this? Anybody want to talk about that? You talked about sort of the skirt or short, you know, the ruler measures or whatever. Wow. Um, talk about not measuring up, literally. Uh, any, anything else? Any comment uh, on that? Here in the church, we see that there's a positive relationship with that, with the with the men's industry, with how the those people that suffer sure. sexual addiction. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, here I see that as a positive. Good. Yeah. 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 Good, Donya. We do have a um, a sexual addiction recovery uh, group, a twelve step based group that meets My here. Yes. Question on that one is also like, yeah, we offer that well and and that I have raised that very issue and um, w sexual addiction is not just a male thing and by the way I heard I remember somebody saying to me when when uh, a long time ago at another church we were contemplating bringing on a uh, we used to call them music ministers. Now we call them worship leaders. Whatever. Um, but the it, who was a female, and there was one uh, friend of mine at that church uh, in particular who said, "I don't think I could, I could, I, I don't think that would be good for me." This is a married man, and I said, "Why not? Uh, why not, Bill? Not his real name." Uh, like you wouldn't, like you would care. But anyway, um, uh, and he said because I, a woman up there leading music and worship and so forth, I, I I might be tempted to lust. And it wasn't until years later, really recently, as a matter of fact, that I thought, what if I had said, well, what about the women 
who see a male up there leading worship. That would, I think he would have, I think he would have fainted, actually, if I had said that. Um, women have sexual feelings? What? Um, but it, really, I mean, that, that is, I mean, you, you raise a good point, you know. What about women? And, and by the way, um, women, um, part, of the, part of a sort of patriarchal culture is that women are, are sort of held up on this porcelain pedestal, which is very bad when you do that to anybody. Because what it does is it causes you not to be able to relate to that person as a person. You relate to that person as an idea or an ideal. And so the, the good news, and this is kind of weird, the good news is that women are fallen too. That's really not good news. But uh, what I'm saying is that they are persons, and we must recognize that both men and women struggle uh, with these kinds of things. And so the conversation continues, and I'm, I'm, it's my hope that we will have a group like that before too long. So, um, yes. That's right. That's exactly right. It was a flawed attempt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Right. Your comment about having learned something. It, we don't have to start over with the same kind of flawed thinking. We can say, what have we learned? What do we need to be sensitive to going forward? And mostly, what's an honest reading of Scripture? How do we follow Christ uh, in all things? Um, not that we weren't asking those questions before, but I think a lot of our blinders were really up. I mean, we could not, you know, in... in for a long time, but certainly in, in the height of purity culture, you know, 90s and 2000s, we, there were just some questions we, we didn't even think of, you know. And um, so anyway, uh, okay. All right, well, um, let's, uh, let's get into uh, some of this here. Um, and, and basically... I wrote out a series of questions that I want I want to say something on, and then I, I want us to talk about it as well. But um, if we're going to talk about sex, I know, I know, uh, salt and pepper, you know, all that. But um, let's let's talk about sex, baby, uh, uh, in a way that um, is reflective of the larger reality of the universe, which includes the spiritual side of reality. Um, the problem with sex, yes, the problem with sex, is that we are finite beings 
um, approaching something that is both physical and spiritual. And when that happens, there's so much room for faulty thinking and for um, short-sighted uh, kind of thinking. So let's just let's just go right uh, right here. Uh, what is the sex act for? What is it for? Um, it is, um, and, and I, I want us to think very carefully about this. The the Bible says in in Genesis we read uh, some of those. Um, that account in Genesis, but the, um, the Bible says that the two shall become one flesh. Right? Um, for this man, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now tonight, uh, we are talking about um, Sex as understood between the opposite sexes, okay? Um, and I, I don't want to draw a hard and fast line here because, you know, some question we may have some questions and entertain some questions here tonight that, that expand on, on that and expand into, um, you know, same sex and so forth. But um, we largely we will talk about that next week, and I think it is going to be... Um, a, I, I think it's going to be a hope-filled uh, meeting next week. Um, I hope this is hope-filled too. But, um, but here we read in the Bible, for this reason, and, and the man sees the woman, and it's only in seeing the woman that he recognizes who he is here. You see, uh, that, that there's this self-reflection. This is now bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. This is the first time we hear Adam talking about his his person. Um, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What he realizes is not so much the otherness, but he realizes the similarities here. And um, and that ought to tell us something that there is this togetherness. There is there is a a a true uh, helpership uh, established between these two and a very equal kind of thing. And it's not until later that they become adversarial. But um, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Now let's talk about this just for a second. What is the sex act for? Um, focusing on that one flesh comment or that, that teaching in the Bible there, um, we can then understand, and I believe rightly understand, that sex, the sex act itself is a, is a metaphor of Trinitarian unity. Now, when I say Trinitarian, what am I talking about? The Trinity, which is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As such... It proclaims that the, that man is made in the image of God. Humans are made in the image of God. Why does it proclaim that? 
Why does anything that requires uniting proclaim the image of God? It's the hint is the word Trinity. Who is God? Who is God? I'm really asking. Okay, I guess I'll never know. Uh, who is God? Okay, how does God exist? As three in one. So he's not only Father, but Son and Holy Spirit. There is, there is a oneness. There are three persons. Distinct persons, by the way. They're not three gods. You see, this is the, this is the completeness of this uh, tri-unity. Okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God lives in the purest community that you will ever know. The purest kind of community that you will ever know. There is a oneness here. Now... Therefore, uh, the sex act itself is a metaphor of Trinitarian unity, and as such it proclaims that man is made in the image of God. And, and you say, well, there's only two there. Is, is there only two? Yeah. What happens? Yeah, the two that, that are bound in the churches is bound to, to Christ. Okay, but if you're just talking, I mean, that's, okay, I, and I... In a sense, you're, they're, they're supposed to be serving together to serve God. And everybody, I don't know if that's what you Well, no, it's, it's, this, all of this is necessary. It's not what I'm looking for, but it, all of this is necessary, okay? So, so that, that's a value, that's valuable, okay? Because the church is, this is the setting in which this takes place, but, not the sex act, but you know what I mean. Um... So, what you have a a man and a woman. So that's a duality. Is there a is there a trinitarian aspect to that that doesn't include the church as an entity? Huh? Okay. Keep okay. Good, Danya. Keep to what children. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is what we read in the creeds, but it all is also what we see um, in Scripture itself. So you have woman and man becoming one flesh. What does that mean? That means children, procreation. Okay? Um, so, there is a Trinitarian picture there. Um, now, yes? I'm having a hard time making that beat. Okay. Um, Go ahead. I'm not really seeing, I'm not really seeing how you get there. Um, how do you know it's a metaphor for the Trinity? I mean, there was no concept of the Trinity in Genesis. Before. That's correct. That's correct. No concept of the Trinity. No. Now you can't. You can't put. You, you necessarily. I mean, the children. Children are the issue of that union, and, and children as a as a category. Uh, I'm talking categorically here. The category of man. The category of woman. 
category of children. Um, and so you can't, you, you cannot get too literal as far as, you know, how many people do you have in your family? You know, what about that? Remember that show with 19 kids? That's a pretty big, 19, you know, or whatever it is, yeah. Um, they, they got pretty messed up too, but anyway. Um, but Lane, help me out here. The leap from what to what? Well, I mean, the whole thing you're saying, like, it's the fact that this union of marriage is supposed to be a metaphor for the Trinity. I, I don't understand why. Okay. Well, it, it is a, there is a, <clears throat> there is a, anytime that there, anytime there is a joining, well, look, just hold that thought. I hope that maybe the next question will, will help us to make a more holistic picture here. So, so hang on. We have... Um, well, okay, before I get to that next question, let me ask you this. What... Is there... Is there any... Thing that marriage and the sex act between man and woman would allude to within Christian theology and thought. And or any anybody, may, maybe guess, you I guess where you could go with that is that it alludes to family, the concept of family. Okay. Well, alright. Let, let me, let me, um, and I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that necessarily, but I, I would say that even Paul uses, he brings in, and, and so does uh, John in Revelation, they, they bring in this concept of the church being the bride uh, of Christ collectively, and, um, and Christ, you know, uh, being the bridegroom. Why is that metaphor used um, there? So what I'm saying is drawing upon that metaphor and drawing upon the actual physical act as we see uh, put forth in, uh, in Genesis there when, when the two will become one flesh. There is this, there is this yearning for union and this um, sort of um, foretold union that it, it would seem that the marriage union would illustrate, and and when you it is it is awfully convenient that a marital union produces children, and you have you have a trinitarian kind of arrangement there, in which there is a oneness. There's a there is a physical and a relational, a social um, kind of community there that uh, that you can't get any other way. I, um, so I think it's not a bad metaphor. I don't think it's, I don't perceive it as that metaphor is um, necessarily wrong, but I think we're walking a really shaky ground when the requirement for the metaphor is children. 
because the window of opportunity for a married couple to have children is like right. this big, if that even happens. Listen, you could back that all the way up and say, if the requirement for any illustration of, of the Trinity is marriage, then if you're single all your life, then you don't get to partake in that. And that that is not true. And just as it is not true that a couple might not be able to have children, that's rare. It is an exception. And it is an exception to an otherwise um, vastly uh, occurring kind of, of happenstance. We've got the, the other uh, purpose for the sex act is to propagate the human race. But what I'm hearing from you is that what I'm hearing you say is that the purpose for the sex act is this metaphor which involves children and I get and I've heard that before recently that the purpose of sex is children but there has to be another purpose another not just not to cancel that purpose out that's certainly a purpose but there has to be another one otherwise once you hit menopause you're not going to do it anymore no that's not true that's not true. There, there is a um, now. That's a that's a great question and a great point. And by the way, we're we're not we're not cruising through these as quickly as I had thought we would. Um, so we will we will cycle back around after next week, and Lord help us, next week we may even go slower. Um, but um, okay, okay, let's. Let's back off just you a second. Let's, let's, yeah. I, I know. I asked for discussion. I got discussion. Uh, all right. No more discussion. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're, you're actually, yeah, yeah, get out of here. Uh, you, you're, you're actually, this is very good. This is very good. And, and I hope we can help uh, one, another, one another's thinking. You're already helping me. Um, but let's take a step back here, just a second. The sex act, all right, it it is it speaks of, and maybe what maybe speaking saying what is it for? It's for the proclamation of Trinitarian unity. Maybe that's the wrong way to say that. It it just is illustrative of that. It, it just is. Okay? It, it illustrates it illustrates the oneness of God. Of the Godhead. Okay? Um, and I think I believe that you can make a solid biblical case for that when you draw on um, the, the metaphorical use of bride and bridegroom that you find in the New Testament together with this one flesh metaphor that, the, that, that Moses uses in Genesis. So, yes. No, they give birth to children, and all of that is illustrative of the Godhead. Yes. Talk about the illustration of the 
Oh. context all I'm saying is that the the um, I mean that that's a that's a great question but what I'm saying is that in reaching for a metaphor at least Paul and John reached to marriage there's something about marriage that that echoes the kind of unity that we see in the Godhead And so that's really all I'm saying. There's something about. So I'm sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> I can tell that one. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, think, I think maybe we're telling me. What? I think Start with sex, baby. That's where I started. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just being ridiculous. Yeah. Well, if you have, if you have constructive criticism for the way I put this together, we can talk about this in the kitchen. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm simply. Well, but it's more than that too, because he wants to be unified with us, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But, um, but, uh, but I, I get it. But I, I started with the sex act just because that's the topic, the topic. and so. Um, but and maybe it would have been better to you know start somewhere else. But um, but all I'm saying is that there's the biblical writers seem to see that there is something about marriage, um, and which includes as a central component the sex act. You know, people say marriage is more than sex, but if you take sex out of a marriage. Um, then you have something called celibate marriage, which is a qualified version of marriage. But, um, and, and that can be entered into voluntarily or involuntarily. Involuntarily uh, is, uh, can be problematic. Sometimes it is necessary because of injury or so forth. But other times it's just because the marriage has sort of gone off the rails. But, um, but, um, there's something about marriage that echoes a Trinitarian ontology, to use a, a word, a Trinitarian existence in the Godhead. Okay, Lane, do you do you have pushback on that? Would you would you at least concede that there? No, and I'm I'm not trying to you know browbeat you. I'm just 
wondering if you would concede to that. Well, I would concede that that it's important to ask the question why the biblical writers saw this analogy um, and to think about that. I don't think that it's self-evident just from reading Genesis that you would come to that conclusion. Okay, all right, all right. But it's worth wondering why other people came to that conclusion. Other biblical writers, you know, and, and I think... I think that carries. I think that that carries a lot of weight, uh, actually, in in at, least, in at least presenting the question as important. Um, but but I, I I put this out here for your pondering that there is something about the sex act itself that echoes what is true about the Trinity. If that is. Absolutely. Um, far from um, how we normally think of it, even in church uh, circles. Now, let me say that it is it is that is its spiritual, I believe, its spiritual um, grounding, temporally. That is just sort of in the. In our own existence now, as I said, I think that um, it is for the propagation of the human race. Now, what about postmenopausal, you know, women in the marriage or, or um, sterile men or whatever? Um, once you, once, it, well, let's take, uh, you know, people growing out of their childbearing years. Does that mean they should stop having sex? I believe that the answer is no because there is a component of that marriage that has grown to depend on a sharing of bodies. And it would it would um, Unnecessarily impede a, a a wholesome life together. Yes. So, like for me, that raises the question of like, say, like I, I know couples that have voluntarily chosen not to have children because they felt a different calling on their life. Like God has called them into a certain part of ministry. That's like they you mean for religious reasons? No. You've just, known people that have. Married couple, married couples that have decided not to have children. Yeah, so there's a couple where I'm from that they voluntarily decided not to have children because they felt that God was calling them to um, be in a ministry that takes up a lot of their time um, and like requires full. Um, Is are they having sex? Is this a celibate marriage or are they having no, sex? No, yeah, they're having sex, but then like also couples who choose to adopt. You mean otherwise physically able people who are yes. able to conceive and have children but choose not but to, choose not to or choose to bring in a child that's not and still there. have sex with each yeah. other. Yes. Um I, I don't have enough information. I, I I'd have to you know What about people who are physically able to conceive and have children and are married and choose not to? Well, the, the question is, or is, is that your question? Yeah, sort of with the, are they fulfilling 
Um, it, I, I don't want to make a definitive judgment. I, I don't have any standing to pass any judgment at all on those folks. I, it's a large question mark in my mind, though. Because yeah. I, I know from like me personally, should I ever? And, and well, here is the here is the thing: if you are having sex and you are not doing so, ordering your life towards the possibility of children, then you are having sex in a a novel sort of a, a you've invented a new reason to have sex because the 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 basic reason in our finite lives to have sex is the propagation of the human race is to is it's ordered toward the the production of children so what about and if, if you take that away, then, then what is it ordered toward? Pleasure alone? But at the same time, like, how do you face things like, you know, children, children in homes, you know, children who don't have families, like, you know, if we're continuing to have our own children and there's, like, kids who desperately, they have, like, needed... Well, there's no reason that if you have children of your own that you can't adopt children. I know, yeah. But I mean, like, what if there's somebody who chooses, like, I personally don't want to conceive a child that is mine. I would rather bring a child into my home that is someone else's. Well, I would say, first of all, you might change your mind on that. And I would, I, I think it is, there is much less room for regret if you go into a marriage open to the possibility of having a child. Than not. Like I, the way I see it is like me. I would be totally open to like having a child that is mine, but like I'm adopted, and that is something sure. that I feel like, you know. But but see, there. This is not. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. A person can have a child and also adopt a child. But then is it wrong for them to choose? Well, I don't know that you can put it neatly into the, you know, I don't know what all goes into their calculus there, but I would say that if we are anything that anything that arbitrarily separates sex from procreation is is a raises a huge question that must be addressed. I think this is the problem that we've run into with birth control. Um, it is, we, we have reaped a whole lot of unintended consequences as a result of birth control. Now. And many of us have had the option to choose to have children or not. Correct. For most of history. Most of human history. That's right. Only since 1960 or whatever, whenever the pill. Has that even become an option? So it's, it's an option we have now. Mm-hmm. Right, of previous human history. And, and here's the thing. We don't know. Whenever we adjust something about our nature, there are tons of consequences that come down the pike that we're not ready for. I mean, this history on, 
on any front, uh, nuclear physics or, you know, DDT, you know, as an insecticide or, um, you know, whatever it may be, uh, we we are um, we are we're all introducing something that has not been the case before, and we we have these unintended consequences. And so, um, some of the unintended consequences of the pill, and, and see this is a really, it's become a very divisive issue. You know, I could, I could sit here and say, you know, we ought to have birth control, or I could say we shouldn't do birth control. And either way, you know, a, a significant amount of people in the church would say, no, you're wrong. And we're going to argue about that. But um, whenever we separate sex from procreation, there are going to be some pretty serious consequences. For one thing, since the introduction of the pill, there has been a dramatic rise in the acceptance of sex outside the bounds of marriage. Is this good? You know, I mean, you, is it a cultural good? Uh, what has it led to? I mean, we, we can talk about this all night long, but um, but uh, let's get to this next thing, y'all. We're gonna we're gonna end here, and we've all we've done is not much. Um, no, we've actually done a lot. Uh, I mean, you you're really what you're doing here is you're thinking and you're being awesome. So. Um, the term, I'm going to use this term, and it's, it's a weird-sounding term, but it's sexed, S-E-X-E-D, sexed bodies. That means bodies that have genitalia, basically. Um, a body that's you know, male or female, or has male or female genitalia. Um, what are sexed bodies for? Why do we have sexed bodies? Well... Again, let me go back, let me build this, according to Lane, very tenuous uh, architecture here on some of the biblical writers. The church as the bride of Christ. Um, I, I would say this allows us to say that sexed bodies are a sign. What is a sign, y'all? What is a sign? Tell me. Huh? An indicator. An indicator, a sign points somewhere, right? When Jesus did his miracles, what did he often call the acts that he did? Signs. What were they signs of? They were signs that the kingdom of God was breaking in to this existence. Sex bodies, I believe we can I believe that we can build a case to say that they are a sign genitalia and this sounds funny because we don't talk this way often. But genitalia are a sign of the union of Christ with the church. Okay, it is a sign that there is a there is this ability to be unified. Because again, sex is a union of two bodies. As we see in Genesis, male and female. Okay, 
Um, so this raises a question. Jesus, the man, Jesus. Um, why? And by the way, you know Jesus was crucified. You've heard of this, right? He was buried. Then what happened? He, he was resurrected. And do you know what one of the first things he did was when he was resurrected? When he, when he came through those locked doors to his disciples? He showed them his body. Yes. Yes. And he said, you can, yeah. you can touch it. What else did he do? He said, peace be unto you. I am hungry. Do you have anything to eat? Uh, really, this is what he said. I've never met anybody whose favorite verse was, do you have anything to eat? But wouldn't that be cool? Um, can, do we have, wouldn't that be cool to have Jesus on a stained glass window saying, do ye have anything to eat? Um, that would be awesome. Um, it would be like a restaurant, like a church restaurant. Uh, okay, anyway. So, listen to this. You know what happened next? You know what they did? They went and got some food for him. It, we even know what the menu was. It was a piece of broiled fish. You can read it. And, and it, the Bible says he ate it in their presence. Now, why does the Bible go through all that trouble? Exactly. He's not some Ooh, peace be unto you. It's not Halloween. It's Jesus, the man, like Portugal, the man. Um, the the uh, he he's actually there. He's physical. Okay, so the body that went into the tomb is the body that came out of the tomb. Now, what do what if if Jesus? And by the way, he still has a human, but he didn't stop being human when he ascended. The Bible calls him a man even now. He, the book of Hebrews says there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So there is a human being. He's, he's still the God-man, okay? 100% God, 100% human. There is a human being now that is a part of the Trinity. That, that's kind of mind-blowing to think about. But think about this. What do we know about Jesus if he has a human body? A male human body. Hmm? Genitalia. Yeah. He was, that's right. So, what was Jesus' sexed body for? To experience temptations like we do? Was it. Was it to, you know, now you'll, you know, know how difficult it is, Jesus? Was it for that? I mean, that's a good, that's a good answer. Is that why? Um, it wasn't for marriage. Thoughts? Let me continue to build this sandcastle uh, here. Um, the... I believe it is a sign of Trinitarian union. 
In other words, it is a sign, it is a physical sign that there is union yet to be consummated. This is one of the quietest I've ever heard this. Um, it is a physical sign of union yet to be. Okay? Now, y'all, what else could it be for? I mean, I guess we could say, you know, so that Jesus, you know, would get, you know. Of course, he. Will, I know, I know, I get it. But but he and he will, the he the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four, and you can read it. He was tempted in every way, as we are, yet he was without sin. Now, does the existence of genitalia then mean that it is an occasion? I mean, is that what it's for—an occasion to be tempted? Or is that simply one of the ways that the deceiver, you know, tries to visit things on us, the, the devil? Um, part of being a human, part of being like us. It, well, it is. I mean, you cannot be human without so a physical body. I I think that it does have a physical purpose uh, and a and a that points to a spiritual purpose. In other words, with Jesus, I think what you're seeing here, his sexed body, is the physical purpose of that was the refraining, the celibacy, and the sublimation of sexual desire into something else, service to God. But the no, no. I was going to say, but but the physical existence of genitalia is a sign that there is a spiritual union that is yet to be. And what is that spiritual union yet to be? Unification with the Godhead in Jesus's case. The Word became flesh and then ascended to the Father. Are you saying that, I mean, how would, this part of ask a question about this. How, how, so why would that question be any different from the question of why any other person who remains single has genitalia? I mean, what is the purpose of them being sexed? I mean, if, if, you know, in general, human beings, you know, the vast majority of human beings will get married and have children, right. but there will be a substantial percentage who don't. That's right, Lane. Um, the ones who do have to have that equipment. Okay, right, exactly. That's right. So everyone else who doesn't end up doing that is still going to have the equipment because that's right. human beings and God only made and, models. And yes. that question is, is key. The question you just raised is key. And I believe that um, they are, just like in Jesus' case, they are a sign of union yet to be. Now, it's not the same kind of union that Jesus has with God because Jesus is God. But we, we will be 
united with, in other words, the Christ and his bride. They, they are united as a bride and bridegroom, but, but they are not one like the Godhead is one. But, but still, I believe that based on all of this, what it is pointing to is that sexed bodies, whether a person is married or not, but certainly it becomes more apparent in a celibate or unmarried person that this sexed body points to the union of Christ with the church. And, that, and, the, and it, um, it gives testimony to the longing of that for that union, we are their longing is a part of sexual desire, and often we shortcut that by fulfilling it. You know, often a human being will, will shortcut that longing in, in ways that are less than wholesome. But longing itself is not a bad thing. But in an unmarried person or in a celibate person, that longing and the existence of a sexed body gives testimony to the longing for and the promise of union with Christ and His church. Agreed. Because we as physical human beings do not interpret our equipment, other word like right. um, our equipment. As a yeah. spiritual thing. You see what I'm saying? It's a very, and, and that, very much in our physical world and we don't think it has correct. purpose in our spiritual world. And this is to our detriment. What would happen? Don't know, don't care. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't have any idea. I don't know. I don't know. We will not marry and be given in marriage. We know that. Marriage will go away. Friendship is what remains. Don't know. Yeah. And probably... We have made sex in our, in our bodies, you know, because they're shameful and unless they're covered, you know. Right. Correct. With Correct. Just a physical purpose. Right. So we, it's stretching us to think. Well, we are. Especially when you, like, when you say Jesus's uh, eventual union, I mean, it becomes like, really kind of gross. Thank you. Thank you. And, and please, please understand. I'm not saying that that God and Jesus are having sex. I'm not saying that God has sex with the church. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that these are these signify a spiritual reality that of which that longing is a part. And isn't that how Satan kind of perverted the whole thing? I think so. Sure. And keep the the devil will always. Uh, 
have other means of satisfying a longing, you know, ready for us to to uh, grab onto. Was there sex and procreation before the fall? We don't have record of that. It is only after the fall that it says Adam lay with his wife. By the way, the new some of the new translations. I mean, it, you know, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare a son. Um, or Adam lay with his wife. You know what the one of the newer translations says? Adam made love to his wife. What? That's just weird. Okay. Um, to know. That's the. It's. So knew is really more of it. Adam knew his wife. Yeah. To know, you know, carnal knowledge, as we say, you know, to know in that sense is uh, to have intimate physical relations. Did somebody raise a hand over here? I did. Yes. What? So, I know what you're saying. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> if genitalia is signifying future union with God, why did Adam have genitalia before he was created? For the propagation of the human uh, race to before, yet to come. But, but he did. But oh, I don't know. I don't know. You're, you're messing me up. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I never, I didn't think about that because, you know, helper suitable, so forth. Yes, Nicole. Oh, I think, yeah, I think that I, I, I thought you were going a different place with that first. I, I do want to say that sex, I thought you were going to say, and you did not say it, that sex, and I've heard it said before, that sex is a, is a post-fall reality, you know, sexual relations. I, I don't buy into that. But pain, you're talking about pain in childbirth and so? Yes. Wife or man is husband, and then after that. Yeah, we did have the potential to sin, absolutely, which which is necessary. We must necessarily have the potential to sin if we are going to be free uh, people with free will. And so that's a great risk to take, and yet we cannot be people with free will unless we have that potential. So yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, he created Eve that way, so maybe he was going to create children that way as well. Yeah, I don't, just to be sort of a little flower bud out of the side that we had to, but I think we were created with genitalia because that was the plan. Maybe, I don't think. Because I think sex is part of the the and procreative. You need, and you would need male and, and female if they were just going to be created. Yeah, you, right. We would all be rich children. That's true. That's right. Wow. A side of. Look at that sweet mother and a side of ribs. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I, 
I don't know. It's sort of it'd be it'd be at the restaurant with Jesus saying, "You have anything to eat?" You know that ribs. We serve ribs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat your children. Wow. We're all cannibals now. Okay. These these questions are very intriguing. I do believe it's not. It's not. We. We've now we've now uh, embarked uh, we've now boarded an off-road vehicle and we are I feel like I'm in Jurassic Park. Um, okay, I I think it's safe to say for many reasons that that we did have genitalia before the fall and that we were going to procreate like mammals procreate. However, um, the attendant pain and the sorrow and the adversarial kind of uh, life that men and women you know have together this is all a result of the fall the the sexual politics you know that make it very difficult to negotiate a life together uh, this is a, a result of, of uh, the fall um, we didn't even get to is sexual desire a sin or did Jesus experience sexual desire, or is non-marital sex a sin? Um, I, let me just say to, to that last point, yes. I, I believe the Bible clearly lays out that non-marital sex is a sin, but there are there's some very important context that we just don't have time to go into that takes it out of the realm of uh, sort of tally mark scorekeeping uh, you're bad you're good you're you know damaged goods and all that I think we we can't just like I'm doing now leave it at yes it's a sin it, without saying so I'm sorry about that but uh, we'll, we'll come back and add some of that context later next week uh, um, we'll, we'll talk about yes uh, we're already out of time so, but, but no, no, what is it? Yeah, okay, we'll come back with part three and part eight and part 25. Yes. I just want to thank you for wading into the weeds and a subject that I would say probably the majority, if not all of us, carry scars from. I think so that's well you. said. I think, you know, oh, sure. But, but listen, it's you know I'd be in the weeds all by myself unless y'all were part of this conversation. So really, so thank you. Back at you, um, and I think we do. We all do bear scars, and this is part of the fall too. That we all bear these. I mean, y'all think how problematic sexual issues are. Think for just a second. But you don't even have to think. I mean, you just you we live with that every day, and. That cannot be the way God intended it to be. But here we are. So we've got to have his help. We've got to be talking about these things next week. Um, is there a place at the table for people that we, that we, that the church, or at least that the evangelical uh, wing of the church has identified as being outside of the sexual mainstream? Um, and we will deal, I'm, I'm glad, with the questions that um, you know, LGBTQIA, you know, etc., uh, realities raise those questions that they raise. So, I think it will be a very important conversation. Bring folks, uh, 
if you uh, are so inclined and, and we'll have that conversation. Um, it, we're, we're a little over time here, but uh, if, if you have time to stick around, pray with one another around tables and we'll call it a night. Okay, thanks everybody.